I'm Kieran. And I'm Eve. This is Kitchen Table Cult. Where two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Hi, Eve. Hey, Kieran. How are How you doing? <laughs> well, I'm okay. Do, I s- do we not want to talk about it? No, we don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, we can answer a couple questions because a couple people have been asking about like my results and stuff. Um, so to the person who suggested looking at POTS, where I'm already scheduled for, well, I'm not scheduled. I'm waiting to be scheduled for a tilt table test. I started antibiotics for small intestine bacterial overgrowth, um, which is why there Yuck. wasn't an episode out last week because the antibiotics really kind of like took me out and I'm dealing with them better now but the first three days were really terrible uh and yeah so that's like I'm in more limbo I have a referral to an actual endocrinologist in the works because so here's a weird thing um (laughs) yeah UCSF's trans center uh doesn't have an endocrinologist that treats adult patients that's so weird to me. Yeah, it's so weird. If someone can explain to me why endocrinologists who, like, as far as I understand, and I'm not a doctor and I did not go to medical school, but as far as I understand endocrinology, it's like the study of hormones and, like, that's your subject. And I imagine it includes all of the hormones. But apparently not. So apparently it's possible for an endocrinologist to not do hormone replacement therapy for trans people. And it's also possible for, like, them to just not, like, treat adults, which makes sense. But, like, Yeah. yeah, I don't get it. So anyway, if you can explain to me why why hormone specialists can't balance both endocrine disorders and HRT, I will very much appreciate that because I'm baffled. And yeah, this sounds like they're just giving you the runaround, and it's really frustrating. Yeah, it is. How are you? Um, confused about all of the things and looking for jobs. Uh, don't tell my current employer. I love I love what I'm doing, but adjuncting really just doesn't pay anything. Like, I'm just going to be transparent here, and, like, I know, like, some adjunct gigs pay, like, almost a living wage, but I'm earning about 7000 a semester. Holy shit. And I'm not going to get paid during winter break, and that's free, starting to freak me out. And I'm not going to get paid during summer break, and it's starting to freak me out. And, like, I have an offer for doing the same gig but with one more class in the spring, which is lovely. And I love teaching, and I love my students. But, like, I, you know, I need to sit down and, like, talk with them about what's possible because I don't have benefits from this. And it's taking up so much time. And, like, I've been trying to take on freelance projects Wow, I'm just being way too transparent here. Sorry, guys. Um, I'm taking to take on freelance editing because I'm I'm really good at it and I really enjoy it. But like, I find myself so exhausted at the end of the day because I'm commuting almost three hours total. Mm. 
And that's not like on a metro where I can do stuff. That's like driving, actively driving. And um, and so I'm just beat. I'm just like really fucking tired. And I need to find some sort of solvency here because like I can't do this commute and I can't be so burned out all the time. So um, I'm looking for jobs in D.C. and New York and applied for a couple in San Francisco, as you know, but like I don't know that those are going to pan out. And like it's hard for to find a job when you're not living in the city that you want to be in. Yeah. It's really hard to do that. So I'm just kind of trying not to like get stuck in the mud here, but it's hard. I feel that. Yeah. Yeah. So if anyone has any, like, gigs in D.C. or New York or San Francisco, send them this mm-hmm. way. I would do Los Angeles, too. I mean, I loved it there. I, yeah, it's all of these things, like, I, there's a lot that I'm really good at, but I think one of the things that's hard is, like, teaching is a specific, as a profession allows you and encourages you to be doing all of these extra things outside of your class time because it, like, brings a level of, a prestige to the institution if you're getting published, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, that's perfect. If I'm like doing activism and writing and, and speaking, like that makes them look good and they want me to be doing that. And that's like a firm. But in most of the other salaried positions, like doing all these extra things is not really encouraged because you're supposed to get, devote your entire life to the organization. Right. And I just, that's never been who I am. And some of that's like a result of homeschooling. Like, I don't have a really good ability to delineate my professional persona from my, like, passions. They all blend together, and I, whatever I am passionate about is, you're going to know about it. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm writing something or working on a creative project outside of work, like, that's, that's the thing that's going to be, you know, present with me. And that you know, that's not necessarily looked on as professional. Mm. Um, and that's just one of the downsides of being a writer and being who I am. Like, I just have to learn how to balance that. And I have balanced that well before. And I balanced that really badly before. And it's been a quite a while since I've been, like, in a traditional office setting and, you know, working on, like, campaigns or, or like, specific project-based jobs, like, has always been, seemed to be, like, a better fit but most of those don't have benefits. Yeah. And most of those aren't really, like, supporting stable lifestyles. And, like, routine is really important to my mental health, I'm learning. And so I, I got to find some sort of in-between. I'd really, I think, at this point, I'm, I'm looking for, like, some sort of, like, editorial desk job that I can be doing. That makes sense. Yeah. So it's just, it's just been a struggle. Yeah. It's been a rough, like month for everybody <laughs> it's been a rough year okay. it has been a rough year but yeah yeah so that's that's me being like way more open than i've been publicly about this stuff um yeah yeah i don't know i, I love i love i love teaching about what i'm doing and i'm just trying to making ends meet is hard yeah you, really you hard. also need to be able to like eat and sleep and do things like well and like student loans I have some small student loans from grad school and they're coming due in January so I'm like starting to like think about that and that's gonna be you know extra cost like it's just it all just adds up 
Yeah. So anyway, that's that. Um, we are tracking so many things, so many things right now. And I'm, I'm kind of glad we like waited on this because I think like a little bit more came to the front. Um, I was listening to some Rachel Maddow last night and there's like another story that we had like missed in all of this. Oh, the conspiracy theory stuff. I missed We'll get that. into it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you about it. Um, yeah, NBC was confirming some, some rumors and it was like, oh God, I was listening to Ronan Farrow's interview and like that, like the next video on autoplay came up and started talking about, we're talking about Bill Barr. Yeah. Our attorney, current attorney general, um, William Barr, the honorable William Barr. (laughs) (laughs) It's his title. It's his title. Yeah. Um, but we'll get into his, how, you know, his fondness for conspiracy theories next. Okay. All right. So the Honorable William Barr. Who the fuck is this guy and why are we paying attention to him? Yeah. What 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 was the thing that made us start to realize, oh, wait, he is connected to some stuff? Because he said some shit that, like, made us be like, is he a reconstructionist? And then we discovered he's actually just a Catholic who talks like a Reconstructionist, and uh, our interest and believes was all the same things. Yeah, and believes all the same things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what did he say? Uh, so the word that he used that immediately perked up my ears was the dog the whistle. Phrase, yeah, the the dog whistle was the phrase secularists. Mm. Um. Because As if a man who is employed in the public sector is not a secular right? individual. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's the whole... What is a secularist? Okay. A secular... Okay. So we gotta, like, back up and, like, what is not a secularist. So, like, yeah. we... <sighs> secular was a word that growing up, in my mind, was insulting to call someone mm-hmm. it was a slur in my understanding um to call someone politically correct or secular or uh like mainstream was to say that they were focused on worldly interests as opposed to the kingdom of heaven and that they were, like, it was the Susan dilemma. It was the in Narnia when Susan doesn't come back later, and they say she like, you know, lost interest in Narnia, and like all those things, and couldn't regain access because she was too interested in nylons and lipstick and boys. Like right. the idea is that she became secular. So she drifted, she backslid from her faith and she like lost access to the kingdom of heaven. And so that's that concept of like when you stop prioritizing like things of God and you start prioritizing things like material possessions and uh, fame and like fleeting successes over being a good person and upholding your like moral compass. Yes. Yeah, I learned about secularism at Team Pack's worldview camp. Um, 
when and they, and they taught us about all of the other religions that existed through a very Christian framework. And secular humanism, they didn't really teach so much as a religion, but as a worldview. And the difference there is subtle. But basically, secular humanists were people who believed in moral relativism and people who, like, they were almost worse worse than atheists because it was, like, atheists you could, like, scare into coming back to Christianity. But a secular humanist, like, they they think they they can have morals without any god, and how dare they? (laughs) Well, and... And the idea of an atheist is like you can you can reason with them, you can like logic them back into faith, right. but like but the idea of a secular humanist is to value emotions and humans over God, and like say yeah. that man is like the pinnacle of creation, creation quote quote, and so the idea is there's nothing to be reasoned with, right. So there is no moral compass and there's no point against which to orient yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I just looked up. So when did he say this? Where, where was this? This it was, was in the speech at Notre Dame, right? Yes, it was his Notre Dame speech. And I just looked up the um, transcript for it. Because Do you want to read the quote? Yeah, I'm just going to. I just searched for um, secularist. And so there's like 22 references. Anyway. We found um, this in a, in a Guardian article. That, in yeah, I actually piece. pulled up the entire transcript is on um, the Justice Department of Justice's website. Of course. Um, so, Good. yeah. Because obviously, obviously. At least they're doing is. one thing right and keeping their records. Right. Safe. It's like, well, at least, at least we can see this. So he starts off saying that modern secularists dismiss this idea of morality as otherworldly superstition imposed by a killjoy clergy. In fact, Judeo-Christian moral standards are the ultimate utilitarian rules for human conduct. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I should not find... Like... I'm just, like, having, like, a Pavlovian response because it's, like, how many times have I heard that? Right? And taken it so seriously. Okay, sorry, keep going. Yeah, and so he continues. They reflect the rules that are best for man, not in the by and by, but in the here and now. They are like God's instruction manual for the best running of man and human society. By the same token, violation of these moral laws have bad, real-world consequences for man and society. We may not pay the price immediately, but over time, the harm is real. I'm so sorry, Jeff Bezos is successful. Why? (laughs) Right? He then continues to talk about how good religion is and why it's important and it's boring. And then he gets back into, on the other hand, we see the growing ascendancy of secularism and the doctrine of moral relativism. By any... Moral relativism! (laughs) Take a shot. (laughs) Take a shot. We hit a bingo. (laughs) Sorry for yelling. But, okay, what is moral relativism is the idea that whatever you, your feelings that are in response to your experience of reality, that they are real, real and valid, and therefore you should, you know, your your experiences should be taken seriously. So this is where gaslighting women for like 
you know, saying that like things under patriarchy feel unfair comes comes to play. You know, things things like that like get will be chalked up to moral relativism right. and like dismissed. Yeah, yeah. Among, Among many, many, many things. Other examples. Yeah, yeah. It's it's basically the entire concept of like. It's like discrediting your inner moral compass because it's different for everybody. So it's obviously relative. And how can you say whether something is bad if someone else does it? And, it, you know, it's just it's a very long, well, it's slippery also slope. Just like, well, it's also just, yeah, they, like the argument is that like, well, you can't trust your feelings because they're going to mislead you. And we have God's word, which will direct us to what's real and like the, the correct orientation um for our moral compass but like if you have no moral compass because you're a secular humanist your feelings are your moral compass and therefore therefore bad yeah 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 okay okay sorry keep going (laughs) yes um and so then he goes into explaining how moral relativism is bad um he blames it he blames the wreckage of the family depression and mental illness and suicide on moral relativism Wow, so familiar. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's what that's what really got me is I, like, I didn't bother to listen to the speech, but, so, like, I saw people talking about these specific quotes, and I was like, what? So he's, so he's, he is of the mindset that we grew up with that, like, depression is a result of sin and, like, not being in submission to god's law in some way and like maybe something like unresolved bitterness in your heart or whatever and like medicine is not important to fix it well because it's just a faith issue so you know yeah it's a it's a yeah yeah it's a it's a moral faith-based issue which you can't you can't solve with chemicals because it's moral (laughs) anyway bullshit okay so we started seeing people yell about this and we were like ah what is this and then we we as we're reading it we're realizing that and reading about him as a as a attorney general he served as attorney general before under hw yeah under bush bush the first and um and the policies that he takes and the things that he does like he's been accused of obstruction of justice before he's gotten himself in all sorts of hot water he has had the nickname of Cover up General Barr. Yeah. He was very much disapproved how Kenneth Starr was handling handling the Whitewater and Lewinsky investigations um, under Clinton. Like, there's there's all this thread that's running through it that's. This has been him really all along. Really interesting. Yeah. Like, right. This has been him all along. And, and a, I think it goes back to like we, we've joked, jokingly mentioned Divine Right of Kings before, but I think we need to get into it here because it seems to be behind his reading of the constitution yes and so when we've talked about biblical literary literalism we've talked about it in terms of like how you know fundamentalists will be reading the bible with this modern day what is in here for us and also we have to take it literally literally without regard to genre or setting or context or various authors or anything. And there's this way of reading the Constitution that mimics that very closely. Yes. And it kind of goes back to the whole, like, question in England, 
Was it John the First? Maybe. Who signed? Yeah, hang on. I gotta pull up this. We've got the um, but with the divine right of kings, the origin of the of the end of the divine right of kings. It well, it goes back to like the whole story uh, when Samuel anoints Saul and David. Like that's where the theory. Yeah, uh, Henry the Eighth declared himself the supreme head of the church in England. And that was kind of in the 16th century, which is kind of when it like. No, it's it's older than that. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's it goes way yeah. back. But there's there's um, it's the Magna Carta, isn't it? Is that ends the divine right of kings? Hang on. Yeah. Yeah. John the first at Runnymede. Okay, I'm not crazy. No, no. I I saw this doc. I saw this document in, in Salisbury. I I like, but I just was blanking on the name yeah. of it. So it's the Magna Carta is ending the divine right of kings and like acknowledging that even if God has appointed the king to their position, the needs of the people in the country must come first. The king must serve the country, not the other way right. around. And the this is the root of a lot of our law today comes from the Magna Carta. Right. Like, the, the whole English common law stuff, like, is all built around that. And so it's this interesting conversation when when you hear Christians calling Trump an imperfect vessel, it's a, to me, that's a dog whistle about divine right of right. kings. Because it's, it implies that God has chosen this man to lead our country and that we have to not criticize it and we have to trust that God's will will play out through this person leading our country and and that's like was a lot of the problems that was happening with uh the the kings in the old testament in Israel like according to you know the christian canonical stories right. the like the kings would like fuck up and like you know, not honor God and like the Israelites will get like conquered and sold into slavery um, if they weren't like pleasing God. And but there would always be this theme of like, despite that, good things would happen anyway and God would be glorified. And so right. it like, kind of all worked out yeah. in the end. And so there's this like same mindset that's been carried over into treating the presidency as like a divinely pointed office. Right. Well, and that also dovetails into um, his view of the Constitution where it is yeah. divinely inspired, which is not an uncommon philosophy on the right. It's something that no. Michael Ferris teaches. Wall Builders has an entire page on their website dedicated to quotes from the founding fathers that like proves that uh, the Constitution was inspired by God and therefore it is like a living, like breathing biblical, biblical text. text. Yeah, basically. Um, well, I mean, this is this is what you know you run into with PhD grads and like lawyers who work for ADF a lot of the time. Like the idea of a constitutional amendment is like really hard for them to grapple with because the Constitution as it stands is seen to be so perfect. Right. And and to like edit so, it okay, to go so, against to God, applicable, yeah. Unless you're editing right. it to like be bigoted, right? And so William Barr was like been on record criticizing 
Roe v. Wade, not as, not in terms of like precedent and context, but in terms of like it's, it goes against original intent. Right. And so he's basically saying like this is like not divinely inspired in the way that the rest of the Constitution is, and that's why he doesn't like it. Right. It's like it doesn't match what he how he interprets the rest of the Constitution. And it's and it's like that's like all of his pro life Catholic reasoning obviously complicates that, but I think that there is a very like I think there's a separate like life starts at conception kind of philosophy and then also how you read the Constitution indicates that you do not have the right to terminate right. a birth, a terminate a pregnancy, right. sorry. Because, like, our founding fathers in their infinite divine given knowledge would have put that stipulation in at a time where, like, women weren't people. Where, well, Kieran, God, God anticipated everything in the Bible. Why wouldn't he anticipate everything in the Constitution? Well, exactly. I mean, that's why, that's why we can't question <coughs> any of it and must only go with a bunch of, like, selected quotes from the people who, like, wrote the Constitution-ish, but, or didn't write the Constitution, but helped found the country, even though those same people also wrote against, like, having religion and the state overlap at all. But, you know, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. And also, like, even though most of these people, like, were not good Christians. Right. Some of them weren't even. criticized the Bible. Yeah. And, and yada, yada, yada. So there's this, there's this mythology around it. And, I mean, we, I've talked ad nauseum about, like, the city on the hill concept of America this vision for America as like the new Israel and this is this is an extension of it and he doesn't go so far as to like overtly connect it and I think that's where the Catholicism is his backstop yeah but but it's that's just the next step that's that's a very natural step um because that's how everybody else who agrees with him on these things that's where they go next yeah so he's the attorney general again, and he believes that this is the thing. And Vanity Fair had a really, really good, really long, really detailed expose that like gets into his history, his family history, like how his worldview has kind of affected him. How he was shaped. How he was shaped. And so. Yeah. So like, OK, <laughs> first of all. Like, here's the trivia piece for you from this article. And then we'll get into the real stuff. <clears throat> His father was a headmaster of this private school called Dalton in New York. Yes. Uh, none of his classmates liked him. They all hated his father and him. And his father hired young 21-year-old Jeffrey Epstein. Like, the, the Jeffrey the Epstein... One. To teach math when Jeffrey Epstein was unemployed and completely not qualified to teach math. I think it only lasted like a year, but what? Yeah. There's. <laughs> Everybody knows everybody. It's fucked. Yeah. This, the world is very, very, very small and it is all interconnected. Yeah. Yeah. So nobody liked him or his dad. Everybody was fucking terrified of his father. 
And his father had a particularly colorful way with language and a particularly rigid worldview. Yes. Um, I'm going to read this quote. This is another classmate commenting. This is in a series of like classmates commenting about memories of Father Barr. Um, Sarah Crichton, when she said she went into spasms when she saw Barr testify, remembering the moment the headmaster called an assembly and decried the women students who were seeking permission to wear slacks to class. Quote, the rule was that you could not wear pants unless it was below 20 degrees outside. End quote, she said. Mr. Barr stood up and told the assembled high school, your desire to wear slacks is masturbatory ego gratification, end quote. And I think he meant that literally, like, like the idea of, like, like having a seam in your crotch was going to, like, try to get you off, like. Like, probably. Given, given some of the other things he wrote, what was, what was, what was his his description? The sneeze of the genitals. That's how you describe the orgasm. So, yeah, this guy is what we culturally, uh, like, socially associate with puritanical. Yes. Uh, He is the definition of that. Yeah, what else? Yeah, and Barr the Younger just ran with that and was very abrasive to the other classmates and has obviously taken all of those lessons and a huge chunk of like very religious fundamentalist Catholicism and just ran with it. And a rigid brown noser. Yeah. And so. (laughs) And the father like, and like not only did nobody like him at school as a student, none of his classmates, but like nobody liked his father either. Like his father kept getting into conflict with the Dalton parents over his policies. They eventually had to and, have a coup and, like, overthrow him. Right. And it, like, like one of the big things that, like, tipped it over was the, like, growing anti-Vietnam War sentiment. Mm-hmm. And the father was such a, like, tried and true establishmentarian that he, like, refused to hear criticisms of, of the government and the Vietnam War. And so that was, like, one of the big controversies was, like students wearing anti-Vietnam War propaganda protest pins or whatever to class and the father just like confiscating them and destroying them telling them no you can't yeah. do this. Yeah and then also like ruining people's getting into college chances by like just blasting oh, them yeah. on their referral letter reference letter. Right yeah right. there was a kid who like was actively protesting Vietnam and like the father, father bar, like, was on, like, in char- responsible for a referral letter to get this kid into colleges. And the kid didn't, even though the kid, like, had all A's, you know, the same grade, yeah. same grades as everybody else who was getting into all these schools and the same, you know, SAT score or whatever, and the same, like, pedigree, like, didn't get into any of these Ivy League schools that he was, you know, like, groomed to get into and all of his peers were getting into them and he later found out that it was because the father had like lambasted him for his anti-Vietnam war uh protesting days so that was 
Bar the Younger's childhood. Yeah. And he saw that and apparently didn't think that was bad. And then decided to go on and become the attorney general. We went to the CIA first. Yeah, well, yes, he went to the CIA first. Because, you know, security is important. Um, (laughs) You know, when he was attorney general the first time, he started a like a citizen surveillance program that would be like tapping into citizen phone calls before, before the Patriot Act that served as a model for the Patriot Which Act. Which is why that was so easy to like do. <sighs> uh, yeah. So bad. Anyway, the point that I want to get to, the quote I want to read is from this article in The Guardian covering his speech thing and... They said that he also made sure to reassure the audience that, quote, as long as I am attorney general, the Department of Justice will be at the forefront of the fight for the most cherished of our liberties, the freedom to live according to our faith, end quote. And so. So he said that. Yeah. That day at Notre Dame. Yeah. Yeah. And this is. This is this is what set off a bunch of people because everyone is like separation of church and state. What? Why Mm -hmm. is it broken? But if you look at his track record and everything he believes and everything he said and everything he has been working for for the last, like, 30 years, he he believes in the religious theocracy. Like, he is part of the conspiracy. He wants us to go back and bring all that, um, everything that we've been fighting for, he wants to roll it back. Well, and it's also kind of interesting that, like, Trump's language along these lines is escalating as the impeachment inquiry progresses. And it's like, it's almost like Barr's trying to amp things up to match him in tone. It's like, it's like trying to make Trump look less extreme. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting. And it it follows with the whole, his his, his belief that Trump is an imperfect vessel, which is something else that he said earlier. And like, we must enable him to go do whatever God's will is because... That's God's will. Right. Well, and that would explain why he's been pursuing this conspiracy theory. So here's here's the story. Um, there's this conspiracy theory that's been going around. It's kind of like parallel to the emails, but her email story that, by the way, there was nothing there. There was no wrongdoing. It has, the investigation has closed and it was fine. Shocked. Shocked. I don't know if any of our listeners are aware of this term, but like there's like the taking out the trash, like big news stories that they drop on Friday so that they'll get less coverage. Mm-hmm. And that was one of them. Um, so the administration dropped that news. The DOJ dropped the news that the investigation had closed and there was that no wrongdoing had been found. And they dropped that last Friday. Yeah. Way to deflect. Yep. Uh, divert. So the, the conspiracy theory goes that... I guess the Obama administration had planted spies that were designed to, like, get information on the Trump campaign to discredit the Trump campaign. And somehow that was responsible for him getting elected or something. I don't, like, it's very foggy, but it's also very tied to this, like, the, you know, that whole concept of, like, when you are someone who is guilty of X, you assume that everyone else around you also does yes. X. And you start accusing them of doing X Projecting. preemptively so that, yeah. It's so, you know, if, if, you, if you 
if you've been a, a petty thief, you're going to accuse other people of being petty thieves as well. And, you know, to try to deflect from attention on being found out as a petty right. thief. Right. So this theory um, about these spies kind of feels like that. Yeah. Because it's it goes into it, it like is very directly tied to the whole like Trump leveraging resources in Ukraine to try to get information on the Biden campaign. It's like that's what he's doing. And the conspiracy theory is that the Obamas did the same to him, basically. Right. So Attorney General Barr has been going around. This is this is what I was found on the Maddow episode piece. And I can't find that, that clip again because it, it was one of those autoplay things. I was holding laundry and missed it. But... Um, on the Maddo piece, she was explaining that like he's been going on this diplomacy tour where he's been going around and he's been checking in with other like justice departments in other countries to see if they can like back up what the American um, embassy representatives have been doing in that country to like cross check their stories to see if like they were actually doing what they said they were doing hmm. because it's like part of his way of like trying to uncover if there was like any of these like, you know, right. <laughs> subversive, yeah, methods being used. So like our taxpayer dollars are going into William Barr traveling around trying to investigate this conspiracy theory because he believes that is the case. And it's not true. It's like totally not true. But like, yeah. I just yeah uh, yeah I don't I don't usually listen to Maddo because she's or well for a lot of reasons but but that way that caught my attention and I thought that was interesting because it ties into this whole like one you believe that everybody else is just like you if you are you know flawed in some way right and you believe that he's protected under like this divine appointment then of course you're going to be looking into conspiracy theories designed to discredit him to try to like get him out of it because with the impending like the it's it's uh proving the point with persecution complexes like if you believe that you are called to do something then you believe that you like God called you to it, then you believe that like the devil's going to be opposing you, and like so the impeachment inquiry is, is obviously one of those, the devil. Like, yeah, they obviously like w- like Trump is definitely appointed for, by by God because like evil forces are trying to get him out. Right. Right. Yeah, it's definitely not that he's the confirmation like voice. terrible, and <laughs> definitely not at all remotely christian or anything but it's definitely that no god has a purpose for him and was appointed and we definitely need someone that bigoted in the white house and anyone who wants to get him out is just doing the devil's work (laughs) well i mean a lot of this is like why i i couldn't with the predestination stuff anymore because you you end up in these like wormholes of confirmation yes let's quickly explain predestination (laughs) uh that god has a specific set plan for your life and nothing that you can do 
in terms of your free will will disrupt that because eventually you'll always end up doing whatever it is that God planned for you to be doing in the first place. Right. And it also goes into like the more extreme versions like in terms of like whether or not you're going to choose to believe in Christ and become a Christian or whether or not you're going to choose to reject Christ and not. And, and, and it's not that God chooses that for you and plans it, but that God knows perfectly when you're what you're going to do right it's this weird it's inevitable yeah it's weird because it takes away all of your free will but also like makes things not your fault free will is an illusory experience right yeah it's like you don't actually get to choose anything it was all predestined and so whatever you chose is the thing that you were supposed to do which is like Mm -hmm. it's so that 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 always messed with me because I was always like I don't this doesn't make any sense at all. You know, I wonder if that gets into why he's so pro prison. Mm. So one of the things I was uncovering as I was reading this is like when Barr was Attorney General first, he's like argued against he he's abolition of par- parole like, and he wants to increase incarceration. He wants to expand prisons, and he wants to ex- basically like. I think the idea, I don't know how you, where he stands on the death penalty, but the idea is like more significant, longer sentences are good. And I think this comes from that, that predestination concept of like, you can't change. Right. Like people cannot be better and like the system is perfect and there's no <laughs> there's no injustice in the justice system. Right. And there's no bias and all these like things like if you're guilty, you're guilty and you're guilty forever. Yeah. Well I like, he's even said that. Like our our constitution and our religious morality and our divinely inspired document are the perfect rule book for a society. And then he quotes Sam Adams. Where was that Sam Adams quote? I said the yeah. top. Yeah, he um, he quoted Sam Adams, which was, Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. And he just, just right. ran with that. And, and so, like, you know, like, he wants to go back to the Old Testament times when we stoned people for disobedience and being queer. Like... Well, I mean, and it also, it also assumes that there is th- that... The law and morality are are static; they're not fluid. Right. So that your that morality is a fixed system that is unchanged by you know societal development and progress in time. So right, because if it's, therefore the justice right the justice system is also the same. I mean, it's like yeah. if the constitution is still applicable today and hasn't you know we haven't evolved from it, we don't. Right we aren't going to evolve from it if you know anticipated all of our problems then uh, the moral compass system is the same and therefore the justice system is also the same because we're not going to evolve to a point where you know we can Im- well evolution isn't even possible like we're we're always going to be exactly at wherever evolution. we are yeah like there's yeah. no and and that's the thing that he really hates that he kind of like got into in his speech was just like i'll just read some of the quotes because i was looking at them 
Go yeah. So he says, we are told we are living in a post-Christian era, but what, is hap- but what has replaced the Judeo-Christian moral system? What is it that can fill the spiritual void in the hearts of the individual person? And what is a system of values that can sustain human social life? The fact is, no secular creed has emerged capable of performing the role of religion. Hmm. And then he goes into, like, weird science. He's like, homo sapiens emerged roughly 50,000 years ago and it was just in the past few hundred years that we've exper- experimented in living without religion and goes into listing oh, wait, how it's so all he's, bad. He's, he, is, he does believe in evolution. Apparently so, but just still, just, still, 50, just, just when it suits his purpose. Just biological evolution, not social evolution? Yeah. What we call values today are really nothing more than mere sentimentality, still drawing on the vapor trails of Christianity. That was something he said. Like two lines later. Okay. Yeah, this is going into his digs against secular humanism. Yeah, yeah, this is all his whole force. Humanist values. His whole force. His whole speech is basically about how Christianity is good. Christianity is the only thing that can keep a good society going, and secularism is bad. And he's using secular as like a blanket for anyone who isn't Christian. Right, which is how it's used yeah. in those circles. Yeah. yeah, that's standard. So, yeah, one of one of the things he he says um, first is the force, fervor, and comprehensiveness of the assault on religion we are experiencing today. This is not decay; it is organized destruction. Secularists and their allies among the progressives have marshaled all the forces of mass communications, popular culture, the indi- entertainment industry, and academia in an unremitting assault on religion and traditional values. And, like, that is a line that I have seen and heard so many times growing up also. Mm-hmm. Like, people have been yeah, talking about that yeah. forever. Yeah. And our unremitting assaults on our moral values. Yes. And traditional values, which is also a dog whistle. Yeah. Yeah. So that's William Barr, and that's why we're starting to pay more attention to him, because we missed it. Earlier when we just were like, oh, Catholic, okay. Yeah, no, as it turns out, Catholic, but also Dominionist. And also literally Mm. everything that we have been talking about. Yeah. The Conspiracy is Real, part four. Sorry, it keeps going. (laughs) We're never never going to stop. stop. We should just call this podcast The Conspiracy is Real. Yeah, (laughs) right. So... Thank you for listening to us bitch about William Barr and our various, you know, quotidian struggles. Yes. We love you and your support. We love getting the emails you're sending us and and talking about them amongst ourselves. If you have questions, please do email us at kitchentablecult at gmail.com. Yep. And if you want to support the podcast and have access to all of the archive, you can do that on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash kitchen table cult pod. You can also find all the episodes, information about how to contact us and other interesting things on our main website, which is kitchen table cult.com. Thank you to Dave the Great for producing and editing this as always. And um, thank you to you for your support that makes this possible. Yeah. 
We love, we love you. you so much. Thank you for bearing with us <laughs> while life happens and supporting us through all of that. <laughs> We're trying to stick yeah. it out. We'll be back soon with more fun, interesting stuff. I want to talk about Tulsi sometime in the near future. Yeah, I think we're gonna. I think we're queuing up an episode about Tulsi, and we've still got a couple guests that we're trying to track down. So stay tuned. Bye. Bye.